You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. Next month, it will have been five years in confinement. I will never forgive myself for my criminal offense. I don't talk about it much, but it is always on my mind as it should be. This is Joe. She's reading a letter her brother wrote in early 2018. He's an inmate in the Arizona Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation, and Reentry. We're identifying Joe by her middle name because she fears retaliation from the Corrections Department. We won't be naming her brother for the same reason. Here's what you can know. Joe's brother is an elderly inmate who is more than halfway through his prison sentence. He has a debilitating medical condition, and Joe is his only line of support from beyond prison walls. Because it is notoriously difficult for journalists to interview Arizona prison inmates, Joe offered boxes of records and handwritten letters that provide a glimpse into her brother's prison experience. This is Joe again, reading from the same letter. I have gone back to court arguing my sentence is illegal. It is illegal to sentence someone with a serious medical condition to a prison that does not provide adequate medical care. As the Parsons versus Ryan class action medical care lawsuit was filed two years before my sentence, the judge should have considered this. That lawsuit, Parsons v. Ryan, was filed in 2012. It alleged inhumane and unconstitutional failures by Arizona Corrections regarding inmate medical care. The department agreed to meet certain performance benchmarks when it settled the case in 2014. In the years since, it has been held in contempt multiple times for failing to meet those standards. A U.S. District Court judge threw out the settlement in 2021 and oversaw a weeks-long prison health care trial. As of June 2022, U.S. District Judge Rosalind O. Silver says the Corrections Department is still failing inmates. In a scathing 200-page ruling, Silver said she found that the prison system in Arizona, quote, failed to provide and continues to refuse to provide a constitutionally adequate medical care and mental health care system for all prisoners. So what does this mean for elderly prisoners and those with severe disabilities? This is Aging, a Here Arizona podcast. I'm Nathan Collins, an audio reporter for KJZZ in Phoenix. This episode is about growing old in Arizona's prisons. You'll hear about the difficulties older prisoners face while incarcerated and what criminal justice reform advocates are doing to help. More than 14% of Arizona's prison population is aged 55 plus, and has grown by nearly 2% every year since 2019. A review of prisons nationwide by the ACLU found that almost half of prisoners over 50 and more than four-fifths over 65 have chronic physical problems. They also visit health facilities five times as frequently as similarly aged persons who are not behind bars. And prisons aren't designed to address mobility challenges. There are stairs 
narrow doorways. Inmates have to trek substantial distances to get meals and services, most often without the use of handrails or wheelchair access. Then there's the sleeping situation. Inmates are assigned bunk beds. What was fun as a kid is different when you're an older adult with mobility issues. Here's Joe. And it's a constant fight. Every other unit he's been in, and he's been transferred around several times, um, has bunk beds. And because of his back issue, and because they don't, necess- they don't have appropriate ladders to get up and down the butt to the top bunk, it's been a problem. Inaccessibility inside Arizona's prisons can lead to significant injury for elderly inmates and those with serious medical conditions. Advocates of corrections reform say that the majority of issues have stemmed from legislative efforts that privatized the prison medical system in 2012. They privatized everything. They privatized food services. They privatized the commissary. They privatized um, health care. You know, they privatized everything, thinking that was a solution, and it's not. This is John Fabricius, the executive director of Arizonans for Transparency and Accountability in Corrections, an organization that works to spread awareness of misconduct and issues surrounding incarceration in Arizona. Fabricius is a former Arizona state prison inmate and was released from the system in 2018. He says that he has witnessed firsthand some of the medical pitfalls that inmates experience. Those issues escalated in the lead-up to privatization, when state-appointed medical staff knew they would lose their jobs. All of the state medical workers that were there, the doctors and nurses, they knew that their jobs were coming to an end. So we started to see attrition in medical staff. That became extraordinarily acute. He gave this example of an elderly inmate who began to lose vision in one of his eyes around that time. He woke up one day and a little bit of his vision in his left eye was uh, obscured. And he put in a health needs request to medical doctor. They never brought him into medical, which was on the unit doctor, state doctor at that time, because they had not changed over to privatization, sent him Visine through the mail and said, try this for a week, which he did following directions. And of course, it didn't get better. Fabricius says that when the elderly inmate was finally seen by a doctor, the diagnosis turned out to be a detached retina. The inmate ultimately lost vision in that eye. A detached retina is an emergency situation, right? It's If you look at any of the medical deter- medical stuff on that, it's publicly available. They're supposed to address that within 24 hours. Fabricius explained the process for inmates to get medical care in this way. First, the inmate fills out a health needs request, or H&R, unless they are dealing with a documented chronic illness. There's a $4 copay to submit the request. That's cost prohibitive when you consider inmates earn 10 to 20 cents an hour while participating in inmate work programs. That H&R is evaluated by prison medical staff. Then, a nurse sees the patient. If the medical issue needs to be escalated, the nurse will recommend that they see the staff nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, or doctor. At least, that's how it's supposed to work. As Judge Silver noted in her ruling, There aren't enough health employees to care for the roughly 25,000 people housed in Arizona's state-run prisons. Silver wrote that nurses are the first and often only medical professionals available to see prisoners. Sometimes the nurses, who may be insufficiently trained to diagnose and treat a given condition, 
miss obvious signs that should lead to a referral to a higher level provider. And there are additional hurdles when it comes to treatment. Here's John Fabricius again. Then once you get in to the doctor, they're limited by their companies. They uh, make them generally go through like a panel that um, approves whether or not medical treatments are done. If you need some sort of outside care or you need to go see a, a specialist or whatever, then the doctor, that provider has to send it up to this uh, authorizing panel that's work, you know, that's at the company. And you can imagine the, that they don't want to authorize those because of the way that the contract is set. Fabricia says that the contract between the state and the healthcare provider sets a per diem for each inmate. And the more care a person needs deducts from the limited money allocated for each individual. So it incentivizes the companies to deny treatment, right? They're losing money by providing inmates treatment. And so that's the way that contract model is set up. Fabricia says that in his experience, elderly inmates are at risk for more than just an arduous healthcare process. They are clearly have higher uh, medical needs and, and they were treated you know, just as poorly, uh, sometimes even more poorly. We asked the Arizona Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation and Reentry for comment on the status of medical care inside state-run prisons. Citing HIPAA, a corrections spokesperson directed us to look at inmate health services policies that are posted on the departmental website. And they issued this statement, quote, In considering the selection of our new health care provider, providing maximum savings to the Arizona taxpayer, and providing the highest quality of care for the inmates in our custody were top priorities. Our new partnership with NAFCARE will bolster our ability to continue our mission of providing excellent health care to the men and women who are in our care and custody. End quote. How do you fix a failing prison health care system? Silver, in her ruling, ordered injunctive relief that has yet to be determined. Meanwhile, the Corrections Department has entered into a five-year contract with a new health care provider. Attorneys for Arizona inmates have proposed a receivership. The remedy has been used with prisons in other states, including California. In 2005, a federal judge seized control of California's prison medical system after finding one inmate a week was dying of medical neglect or malpractice. He appointed a receiver who retains control of the medical system, though the state is slowly taking over operations at individual prisons. The lawsuit that prompted the change in California and a similar suit over poor mental health care led a panel of judges to declare that prison overcrowding made it impossible to improve conditions to constitutional standards. The judges put a cap on California's prison population, forcing a dramatic drop in the number of incarcerated. The state eased criminal penalties, kept lower-level offenders in county lockup, and increased opportunities for parole. The latter is an effort that Families Against Mandatory Minimums, or FAM, advocates for nationwide. More specifically, FAM pushes for what it calls compassionate release. There's a humanity issue here that I think can't get lost in this conversation. This is Mary Price. She is general counsel for FAM. A lot of states, a lot of people don't like to use the word compassion, but we've decided to use it because we want to focus on the humanity of the individual. We want to be sure that when a program is constructed, it's constructed with the 
with the person front and center, that we have to think about the people who um, are incarcerated and what it means for them. Price and her organization work to make information about various special release programs more readily available to inmates and their loved ones. I've been doing this for a number of years, and we just get phone calls from people who are frantic because they don't understand. They have a loved one in, who's in prison who they've just learned is terminally ill, and they can't get any more information, and nobody will talk to them in the institution. And one of the things that I've discovered is that people, particularly people who are incarcerated need a compassionate release, and their loved ones on the outside don't know um, necessarily that the programs are available. And when they try and get information from, um, you know, prison officials or from staff, um, they're often met with, you know, ignorance or disinformation. The lack of information for inmates' families carries over to other aspects of incarceration too, like serious medical emergencies. Family members, like Joe, say that finding information on inmates is a difficult process. When he ended up in the hospital, which we found out by accident, um, nobody would tell me why or where. So I took it upon myself, knowing he was in Tucson. There are two major medical centers in Tucson. I called Tucson Medical Center. I said, are you the facility that houses the inmates from the AZDOC complex there? They said, yes. I said, can you please send me to the administrator who's in charge of that unit? Sure. The admin assistant who answered the phone was lovely. She said there wasn't anything she could do, I understood, but she would try to get a message to the medical people on his unit. There's no way for me to contact him, and nobody at AZDOC will give you any information. What's wrong with this picture? Arizona's special release program is called Executive Clemency Due to Eminent Danger of Death which allows for an inmate sentence to be commuted if they are terminally ill. The caveat is they must have less than four months to live. The Arizona Clemency Board reviews the cases and then makes recommendations to the governor. The board received a dozen requests for clemency in 2019 and recommended five to Governor Doug Ducey. According to FAM, Ducey granted two, while three people died before he acted. 2020 was a better year for clemency seekers. The board received and recommended nine requests to the governor. He granted them all. FAM cited Arizona's limited eligibility criteria when giving the state an F letter grade. The group issued a report in October 2022 that included a state-by-state analysis of compassionate release programs. FAM and the Arizona Justice Project worked with state lawmakers on legislation to expand current parole provisions in Arizona. Senate Bill 1478 proposed to give the Executive Board of Clemency permission to release a prisoner on medical parole. This was a piece of legislation, super thoughtful, that would have expanded eligibility and also taken the governor out of the decision-making process and leaving the um, decision, I think, to the to the clemency board. So um, that was introduced in, I think, early in 2021, and I don't think that it advanced very far. SB 1478 outlined criteria, including the type and severity of diagnosis, be it physical, mental, or cognitive. And it also had a provision for inmates in, quote, deteriorating health due to advancing age. To qualify, the clemency board would have to determine the prisoner is unlikely to reoffend, their release is medically appropriate and cost-effective for the state, 
and that it's in the interest of the prisoner's well-being and dignity. A bipartisan slate of lawmakers introduced the bill, but it never made it past a second reading. It clearly had a lot of work that got into it, and I think that it really captured this idea that one has to understand the population that uh, we're finding in uh, incarcerated in prisons, um, understand the challenges that they're facing, and then provide means of early release when incarceration no longer holds any meaning for them or for us as a community interested in looking at uh, who is you know who's in the prison who are in the prisons right now and whether they ought to still be there. Scholars have been studying reform efforts that lead to early release for older prisoners. The state of Maryland was highlighted in a four-volume report by the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. More than 170 aging inmates have been let go from Maryland prisons since 2017, according to Releasing Older Prisoners, a chapter in Reforming Criminal Justice, Volume 4, Punishment, Incarceration, and Release. This was the result of agreements reached between prosecutors and prisoners and a starting point to implement a 2012 decision granting conditional release held by the Maryland Court of Appeals. The average inmate was 63 years old and had been incarcerated for nearly 40 years. An overwhelming percentage of these individuals were African American. This is another example of a handful of efforts around the country to remedy what experts have said is a growing problem. But the chapter also notes that Maryland's elders are being released without work release programs, and most without transitional housing infrastructure. Mary Price says that, looking forward, there needs to be some infrastructure in place for if and when inmates with severe or age-related medical conditions get released. One of the things Nathan and I've been thinking a lot about is release planning. Um, Generally, if somebody is going to go home in the ordinary course, uh, release planning could start 18 months ahead of time, you know, working to figure out what kind of programming the individual might need on the outside. She says that for someone with a terminal illness, there usually isn't 18 months to plan in advance. And having a plan in place might actually encourage those deciding on release to rule in an inmate's favor. I mean, in Arizona, I think the terminal illness criteria is like three months or four months. I mean, so people are really at the end of their lives. And there's, you know, not that kind of stretch of time. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to um, begin to um, think about release planning for this particular population. Think that for the decision maker to know that an individual who's leaving prison has housing, has medical insurance, will have the durable medical equipment they need and transportation to go to and from their doctor's appointments or their hospital appointments or to the community health center where they're going to be. All of that um, helps the decision maker have the confidence to say, yes, this piece is done. For Joe, being an advocate for her brother is a personal obligation, one that not many other inmates have at their disposal. My brother is one of, of God knows how many who have people working on their side and we get nowhere as basic citizens because we have no appropriate system where that somebody in AZDOC will really listen and act. And at the end of the day, 
The realities of her brother's situation take a personal and emotional toll. Lack of access to medical services, fear of retaliation from corrections staff, and a near-information blackout for loved ones adds to an already grim situation. I don't even sound as angry as I'm feeling inside, but this situation brings out the worst in me. And so anything I, we can do to help fix this extremely broken wheel, we are more than happy to help with. You just listened to the Here Arizona Aging Podcast. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. This podcast is made with support from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. Here Arizona podcasts are all about empowering the community, so we hope you'll join in the conversation. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In this episode, you heard from Arizonans for Transparency and Accountability in Corrections and Families Against Mandatory Minimums. For more information about these organizations and other Arizona nonprofits, head over to our resource page at hearearizona.org. Here Arizona is a production of KJZZ, part of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College. This episode was reported, written, and hosted by me, Nathan Collins. It was edited by Lindsay C. Riley. Thanks for listening.